0: what 2,500 years of Buddhist practice may have to offer the modern non-dual practitioner. And just to give you a sense of my lens on this topic, um, let's see, what are some interesting things? I started meditating at the age of 13, so it's really wonderful to hear that there's school programs now for for young people to learn meditation. Um, My lens on this is really about so there's a combination of about 30 years of Buddhist practice, mostly in the Theravada and Tibetan tradition, um, with uh, about 23 years in the non-dual community, mostly with Adyashanti, for those of you who know of him. And then in the last 12 or 13 years, I've been involved in the Diamond Approach, which um, the two founders are here, A.H. Thomas and Kim Johnson. and. Um, for me, I having been on a transcendent path for most of my life, after awakening, it was really clear that embodiment was really needed. So that's where it became extremely helpful for me. So I'm not here to propose that this is the only path or I mean that would be kind of ridiculous at a conference like this, but just to say what can we learn? from a culture like Tibetan Buddhism, who's been around for so long, and um, I'll also talk about some of the neuroscience that may relate to what I'm gonna be talking about. I was studied at Yale Neuroscience Lab with a if I had pictures, I'd show you a picture of me with the EEG on as as an advanced practitioner. So I'll be sharing some of the neuroscience that relates to, uh, in particular, I'm gonna be talking about Zonchen. So, I'm a non-dual Buddhist teacher, and and mainly I teach Theravadan Buddhism and just Dzogchen, so not all of the other aspects of Tibetan Buddhism. So that's really what I'm going to be talking about is Dzogchen. Let's see, anything else you might want to know about me? Um, So I'm the author also of a book called Practicing the Jhanas, which is published by Shambhala, and gets into... um, A particular practice and and levels of non-duality that are available to experience. So it's on on meditation and awakening, published by Shambhala. So Tibetan Buddhism, um, you know, the the culture that the practices that we now have access to, that the culture that those practices came out of, is really not 100% unique, but very unique on the planet this is a society that basically, the whole society was set up to for enlightenment. That is what the society was about. That's why they have someone like the Dalai Lama as their leader, because that is what it was about. And this went on for such a long time, and almost everybody in the Tibetan society was there to support awakening. They were the monastics practicing awakening, they were cave yogis practicing awakening, or they were householders supporting People who were practicing awakening. That is what they did as a society. And so they, I would propose that they did a lot of scientific experimentation on what worked and what didn't. This is what they cared about. They did things that worked. And um, they experimented. (coughs) They experimented with what worked, and if it didn't work, they stopped doing it for the most part. There's a lot of cultural overlay, so what I'm really talking about is taking all of that off at just looking purely at the practices. That's mainly what I'm interested in. And, um, and if it worked, they did it more, they experimented with it. I mean, these, this culture was so dedicated to finding out about awakening, that they would do things like put needles into where your skull bones meet to try and stimulate the pineal gland, mm-hmm. I and mean, that's pretty hardcore. You know, so these are people who are really committed to awakening, and um, so I'm going to share just in this short amount of time a few things we can learn from that, mainly about the practices of um, of meditation. And as you can tell, since I've been meditating for over 40 years, I I like meditation a lot. Um, it's been interesting being here because it hasn't been emphasized that much. And usually, when I'm teaching, it's centers where that's what everyone's doing, but I love the diversity of what's happening here, so really want to honor that. Okay, so um, I've talked about Tibet. We're so lucky that we have access to these practices. I mean, if you were born 100 years ago, you would have never had any access to any of these practices unless you went to Tibet, and then as a householder, you wouldn't have access to them. You'd have to ordain. So we are just, I mean, I feel so fortunate and so blessed, it's a shame that it took the invasion of Tibet by the Chinese to, for us to have this, I and mean, that's a real shame. But here we are, and here we are as householders where we can have access to these practices. So just out of curiosity, how many of you practice some kind of Buddhism? the sense of who's here. Okay, and how many don't? And it's fine <laughs> if you don't. Okay, how many people meditate? Okay, good. How many meditate every day? How many have done long meditation on trees? Okay. All right, so... um, So that's a few things about Tibet. Um, And another really kind of interesting thing that I love, one of the things about Tibetan Buddhism that I love is they have all this cool stuff, and one of them is called Termas, and basically the person who originated the Dzogchen practice that I'm going to talk about, Padmasambhava, he could see that there was... He, he, somehow he got this practice and took that they went out to all different countries, they brought back the best stuff, and that's what they used. And he could see that this practice would be really useful for people who had more sophisticated mind streams and consciousness than what was available at that time. So he hid the teachings. And they were found at the time he predicted and um, he felt that this would be a practice that would be really relevant for people of a modern age where our mind streams were very sophisticated. We needed a sophisticated tool to um, unlock them and to really have access to what we actually are, our deeper nature. It's like a thorn. We get a thorn in our finger, and then we use another thorn to pluck it out, and that's really what Dzogchen is. So the first... Learning, I would say, that we can glean from what they discovered in Tibetan Buddhism. This may not be, sound too revolutionary, and I'm glad to see so many of you meditate, but the first one is meditation can help lead to awakening. And I know in this community, there's been a big debate about, it doesn't, I don't hear it so much now, but when I was really active in the non-dual community, there were a lot of people who thought, you know, meditation, it's, it's a fabrication, it's a doing, you're just doing a doing, and that's taking away from what you already are. And so I will concede that there, there can be a truth to that. And when um, Tencent Rinpoche talked about basically the best meditation you can do is to not to not be a me who's meditating. And that's a great way to come at meditation, but with the actual progression of awakening that normally happens when a person starts, they're a me, That's what they think they are. They aren't actually a me, but that's where most of us start out on the spiritual path is really being pretty identified with the ego self. So so meditating may feel like a doing at the beginning. And so I'm just gonna go through some of the reasons to meditate and I'll talk about some of the brain research around meditating and what it does for us. But if you look at any of Buddhism, this is obviously a key component of it, So when we start meditating, really one of the first things that most people notice unless you're very, very realized is that you'll be trying to attend to whatever it is that is the purpose of the meditation and find the thoughts come up to pull the awareness off. And that doesn't mean one isn't meditating or isn't good at it. This is actually kind of the purpose of meditating is to see our conditioned habitual patterns of mind. So if any of us, if the most enlightened person here at this conference is to sit down and find that their awareness is being pulled off compulsively in thought patterns, that's a groove in the mind stream that's compulsive. Basically seeing our compulsions. And so whether this is before awakening or after, a lot of people at this conference have had glimpses or are awakened, Um, I would propose that meditation is still relevant. So before awakening, one of the things that's happening is we're, we're building a muscle of um, capacity. And I'll talk about the four different types of meditation that have now been really honed in, in the brain research. There's basically four different kinds and that's it. Each of them do something different to our consciousness. So they aren't doing the same things. But whatever that muscle is that that practice is designed for, it is building a muscle. And that muscle is taking us out of our conditioned patterning that we have been subjected to since the moment we were born, and some people would say in the womb we were being conditioned. So you don't just undo that conditioning in a week. That is kind of ridiculous. You can have a glimpse of awakening in a week, or in a second. Some people have never even done spiritual practice. A lot of people have had glimpses but what do you do with it afterwards? Maybe the most profound experience of your life, but if you don't know what to do with it, it can't take root, it can't flourish into living from that knowledge of what we are. So, um, So meditation's building a muscle before awakening, it helps us see the patterns, it helps us build a capacity to not be compulsively identified with those patterns. And different meditations do that in different ways, which I'll talk about. After awakening, it helps us to see what patterns are left. Because no matter how deep of an awakening there is, and it's really been great for me to hear so many teachers here now really talking about the fact that even a really profound deep awakening doesn't mean that the person is never going to function from ego patterning again. And I went to the um, session on ethics And you should have seen the hands go up about the number of people who are personally impacted by ethics breaches. Well, what's going on with that? And these are clearly realized people who have ethics breaches. Well, what's happening is the realization is real. No question. You can feel that when you're around the person. But the egoic material is, is still active. It hasn't been digested and worked through. And um, there are a lot of practices in trauma work, many modern things, psychology, that can help us work through those. But one of the things meditation really does is it helps us see what the patterns are. I mean, did the person who had sex with their student and abused that relationship sit there meditating and they were fantasizing about the student and didn't know what to do with that? I mean, clearly that was an action that went through their mind stream before they did that act. And so meditation, whether it's something really gross like that or something more subtle, that just keeps us in suffering and identified with the me, either way, meditation can help us see that. And also, as we're building that muscle, every time we meditate and we find that we're drawn off and we come back to whatever the object is, we are deconditioning that pattern. So basically meditation is giving us a software upgrade. It's a software upgrade that line of code by line of code is challenging the old pattern because that thought comes up, it's like you can feel the consciousness and the awareness going there, and it's possible to take an off-ramp. Every time that off-ramp is taken, that's deconditioning and deprogramming, and it's writing a new software program. So basically, we are writing our own software programs when we're challenging that pattern. And then depending on what kind of meditation it is, we're laying down a new program. And I'll talk in a minute about the four programs, Though so I have to hurry. Okay, so some of the brain research, I'll be really quick. Um, meditation increases the actual brain matter of the brain. Um, I mean, this is like the actual physical brain matter. This is one of the most shocking things to me when I started looking at the neuroscience. Um, the brain, when they, a 50-year-old or more meditator um, dies and they happen to do an autopsy, which I'd like to donate my brain when I die, um, have brains of 25-year-olds. So for those of you, we may not look like 25-year-olds, um, but this this is amazing. And there's so many other, you know, there's there's like more than 200, 300 um, studies a year being done on meditation. The results are irrefutable, that meditation is good for us, for our physical health, for our relationships, for the planet. And now we have things like heart map that are showing us that we are actually in a measurable way contributing to the collective. So, um, so anyway, I won't go into more brain research, which I have a lot. The second, then, learning is what kind of meditations. If we're sitting listening to a guided meditation, that's not building the muscle. These are meditation-specific kinds. So there's four kind categories now in meditation. Um, There's focused attention, so this is where you come back to one object over and over. There's open aware, open monitoring. So basically we're letting whatever's arising in awareness and not being attached or repulsed by it. No matter what it is, that's what we're learning, that's the muscle we're building. There's heart-based practices, like the heart math one you, you saw today is very similar to some of the heart-based practices in, Tibet, in Buddhism. And then there's self-transcending practices, and this is the pinnacle, Dzogchen is really the pinnacle of, you know, in Tibet, before now, if you might spend decades doing all the practices that led to Dzogchen. So it is it is the pinnacle practice of Tibetan Buddhism. And um, and it is a self-transcending practice. So in any self-transcending practices, which other traditions have, the obviously. Yeah, obviously um, we are really going for that glimpse of what we are, of awakening. And um, if I had more time, we could go through all the practices. But I have three by four minutes. So, um, so those are the categories, and really, any, any meditation that is being studied can be put in one of those four categories. The interesting thing. About Chen is it uses all four. So I think this is interesting. I haven't read this anywhere, but you know, just as I was preparing for this, it really occurred to me. Wow, Zhou Chen's using all four, and this is significant. And it uses them as building blocks, so that you're you're building one on top of the other. In not in the order I gave, but the heart based. You start with the heart based in, in Chen. Um, but it's building and then as one attempts the self-transcending, if that is, if that arises, then there's a possibility of resting in that, and if it doesn't, then you go down down the stair step, basically. So no matter where, what's happening in consciousness at any moment, there's a skillful means to do at that moment, that can potentially deepen. If it's not deepening, you're building whatever muscle is needed. So it's very efficient in terms of building, it's basically exercise for our consciousness. So I would propose that meditation is exercise for our consciousness. There's so many studies that show what it does. We do physical exercise. Why not do exercise for our consciousness? I mean, it's and 2,500 years of research sounds pretty good to me. So um, so the last thing I will say in terms of um, what we can learn, oh yeah, is the three levels of stabilization of awakening. So it's pretty clear in Rigpa is is the self-transcendent part of the Dzogchen, that's the name of it. And um, first there's glimpses so momentary glimpses that can happen. Then there's the possibility of those glimpses stabilizing. And then it's called resting in Rigpa. So there's realizing Rigpa, which is the, the possibility of having that, that aha. My gosh, I experienced what I am in, in a way that's profound, even if it's only a second. The next level then is um, resting in Rigpa. So as that becomes more um, continuous or in meditation, the the later stages of Dzogchen are eyes open, so there's a natural transition point from on cushion, off cushion, so that we can actually function from that. And then the third stage is um, is non-meditation. This is very advanced, where basically the liberation is happening in the moment. Really what it cultivates is that ability to um, reside in the ground awareness, and then whatever's happening in our um, perception doesn't disturb the ground awareness. So, A lot of the teachers here have been talking about the space in the room doesn't go away, no matter all the people coming and going. That can be happening in our experience with the egoic material, but the ground awareness becomes more and more consistent, so that we're never actually leaving the ground of being in our awareness. This is what we are, and we're, we're actually abiding there. So I'll just close. Um, it's really been exciting for me to see so many people here who are so committed to your own, my own. Um, to the Awakening, and it gives me a lot of hope for the world. So I'm really happy that you um, you are here. So just to close with a quote from the Dalai Lama: Compassion and love are not mere luxuries. As the source of both inner and external peace, they are fundamental to the continued survival of our species. Thank you.